here with us today. I had to turn myself on here. Um, I'm a Scott Fredrickson. I'm an elder apprentice here at North Shore Church, and uh, very glad that you guys could join us today, whether you're here or uh, worshiping online. Um, it's great to be here today. It's a great day to serve the Lord. Um, today we're going to be continuing in 2 Samuel. We'll be reading from 2 Samuel uh, 13, verses 1 through 22. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat, and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was laying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him. But he refused to eat it. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her hand and said to her, said to her Come, lie down with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you, but he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred which, which he hated her was greater than the love which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away, is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called, her, he called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. 
and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. That ends the reading. Let's pray. Lord God, as we enter into your presence today, may our hearts and minds line up with your will for us today. Speak to us through your holy word. Reveal yourself to us this morning through our worship. Give us grace to hear your word and rejoice in it. Convict us of our sins and Christ's suffering so that sinners like us would be converted and the weak be strengthened and Christ's body would be built up. Help us to build each other up today too, Lord. Guide us in our interactions with each other so others are blessed and that you are glorified. Show us how to encourage others with scripture. Open the eyes of our heart to see the glorious hope we have in Christ. Help us to truly treasure you. Protect us from evil, anger, greed, division, lust, anything that Satan uses to separate us from you, Father God. Help us to put on the full armor of God as we live in this world, to be in this world but not of it. We pray for the leadership here today at North Shore Church, for the ministries that are going on. We pray for Pastor Duncan, that his words are your words, and strike anything that isn't true. Guide all that he says this morning, Father. Lastly, we pray for anyone today who is suffering uh, this morning from either those who have had surgery or need surgery or uh, just, Father, that your hand would just be upon them. Anybody going through financial hardships or going through relationship issues with loved ones. Lord, we live in a fallen world where sin is everywhere around us. Give us grace when we screw up and give us peace today, Lord, that transcends all understanding. Guide our hearts and minds to a deeper understanding of you that uh, you are, are glorified in us, Lord. We pray and we thank you for your steadfast love that endures forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as you heard, we continue in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We come to this infamous story in chapter 13 about the rape of David's daughter Tamar by David's oldest son, Amnon. With this story, the reader is struck in the face at how the author makes zero attempts to sanitize this truly awful series of events, and he doesn't pull any punches when it comes to exposing the evil that's in David's family. This is PG-13 to R-rated material here, and so that's why it's hard to read and preach, and it's just a difficult text. Even in our sexually permissive, depraved world, where very few things are genuinely condemned as moral evils, 
Even in our world, most people today would say that rape and incest are both great and very destructive evils. But in this story, you don't just have rape or incense mentioned or alluded to. This story is told in some chilling detail, a particular case of rape and incense. And it takes us directly into the sin-blackened heart of the king's nephew and David's firstborn son. We're given a very clear picture of Amnon's perverse heart and the disgusting desires and actions that flow out of it. All of this, again, is painful to read and even more so to unpack. Most painfully is the fact that we're drawn into the tremendous pain and trauma of this young woman who the author reveals to be pure and wise and virtuous and whose only fault seems to be that she just happens to be beautiful. And so she's attracted the unwanted attention of her perverse older brother. It's grievous to see this young woman, this princess, have her dignity and any hope of a fulfilling life irretrievably destroyed. Tamar will never be able to recover what has been so brutally taken from her. And that's what we see play out in the scriptures. So in light of all of those terrible truths, uh, and we could add more, why would God include this story in the Bible anyway? I asked myself <laughs> many times this week as I was thinking through these things. Well, the most obvious reason is because this actually did happen in history, and the Bible is a historical book. If God chose to include only the uplifting stories about his people, then that wouldn't be the truth, and God can't not tell the truth because he is the truth. Also, the Bible would not ring true to our own personal understanding of living in this dark world if it didn't have a few stories like this. These things happen. If it didn't have that, then this, the Bible would read more like a bunch of legends or maybe even fairy tales than what they are, which in inspired accounts of people's real lives. Another reason why these stories are in the Bible is because God doesn't consider our discomfort over a sordid detail or two a big deal. As we saw when we were in Judges, when he reveals the account of a concubine who is gang raped and whose body is chopped into pieces and sent to the 12 tribes of Israel, God is clearly not concerned about offending our sensibilities in the scripture. And if you go to Ezekiel, you'll see things just as gross or more. Finally, and most importantly, the author wants us to see here and in the next chapter his main point, and that is, though King David has been forgiven of his sin, has he been restored to fellowship with God, the consequences of his sin remain, and they are horrible. The prophetic curse that Nathan gives to David from God in chapter 12 is, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. As we'll see, the way the author reveals these sins in David's family, it forces us to draw a, a direct and unmistakable connection between these sins and David's sins with Bathsheba. He writes it in such a way so that you can't miss the parallels there. 
This part of chapter 13 breaks down into four sections. The first section we could just call setting the stage. It sets the stage for the rest of the story. In verses 1 to 4, the author introduces all the human main characters here, and he reveals all the necessary background elements, the foundation upon which he's going to build for the rest of his story. The story begins by mentioning Absalom, which if you're reading it carefully, is strange because Absalom has a very minor role in this story, and it's at the end of the story. So why would you lead with Absalom when Absalom really doesn't have a lot to do with this story? Well, the reason is because, let me look at chapter, verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. The reason the author leads this story with Absalom and even defines who Tamar is by relating her to Absalom, she's his beautiful sister, is because this story marks the beginning of a major section in the book of 2 Samuel. The next eight chapters are almost all about Absalom. And so this is the way to set the table, from a literary point of view, of all of these stories about Absalom. This introduces us to Absalom, and it sets the tone for the rest of the eight stories, which is essentially containing the worst consequence that David has to endure as a result of his sin, which is the coup that his son Absalom tries to pull off, and that brings a tremendous amount of pain. So the author sees these early verses as the introduction, not just in this story, but for the next eight chapters. Absalom was the third son of David, and both he and his sister Tamar were born to Maacah. Now, Maacah was a woman that David viewed to married to form a political alliance with her father, a king of nearby nation-state. Because Absalom was the full brother of Tamar, they both shared two parents together, he obviously takes up her cause against his half-brother Amnon. Amnon was born to David's second wife, Ahinoam of Jezreel. One of the many problems encountered in a culture where men have multiple wives is the extreme level of sibling rivalry. Now, sibling rivalry can be pretty strong anyway, but when you have half-brothers and half-sisters, that just cranks up the sibling rivalry uh, because they only share one parent together, and it tends to form these alliances of people that have the same parents versus t people that have one different parent. Uh, Amnon, the other main character, he was the firstborn son of David, and so he's the heir apparent to the throne. He's the crown prince, as it was. But this story, of course, reveals Amnon to be a young man with absolutely nothing to commend him to be the next king of Israel. The author instead reveals Amnon to be a, be a man absolutely driven by this uncontrolled sexual lust. Verse 2 says this about him, And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, because she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. This is an early clue as to the kind of passion that Amnon has for his sister. We really shouldn't be surprised when later Amnon rejects his sister after he assaults her because here we see that his root motivation was not love, which is what he claimed. It was instead to do anything to her. Amnon doesn't care a whit about Tamar as a sister and as a human being. He is driven only 
hormonally as it relates to his quote-unquote love for his sister. Because the Mosaic Law, in at least three places, forbids establishing a legitimate sexual relationship between half-sisters and half-brothers, Amnon, rather than take a cold shower or move to the more than thousands of women who could have been, beautiful women who could have been considered as his wife, he was the most eligible bachelor in all of Israel. He wouldn't have had any trouble at all at finding a gorgeous wife, but instead of going to those kind of measures, which would have made sense, he instead focuses on this woman who he knows he cannot legitimately have. That's the mark of an intensely immature and impulsive man. And this frenzy that he works himself up into reveals that he's completely held hostage by his own sexual loss. The last main character this story introduces to us is Jonadab. In verse 3, he's literally called a companion. I think the ESV translates it friend. But he's also the son of David's brother, which means he's also Amnon's cousin. The author reveals Jonadab to be a very wise man. And as you just heard, the ESV renders that crafty because his wisdom tended to run in the wrong direction. Of all the other characters, only Jonadab is perceptive enough to notice that Amnon looks haggard every day and asks him about it. And when Amnon confesses his desires for Tamar, Amnon conceives of an evil, brilliant, effective plan. It's effective because it successfully creates a pretext where Amnon could do whatever he wants with Tamar without any witnesses. But it's even more brilliant and evil because it actually makes the king a part of the plan. Jonadab plays David like a cheap fiddle here, and he makes him an unknowing accessory to the crime. The second section of the story, from verse 5 to 14, reveals the evil trap that sprung on Tamar. David visits his allegedly sick son, hears his request to eat from the hand of his sister, and he asks Tamar to go and get him some food. He doesn't pass on the detail about eating from her hand, just that she needs to go fix him something. As an obedient daughter, Tamar faithfully complies. Everything that is said in this story about Tamar is positive. There isn't one negative detail shared about her that's negative. According to verse 8, she goes to Amnon's house and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. Amnon had actually requested of David that Tamar come and prepare, and this is in the Hebrew, it's not translated in the original, so she wants him to come, he wants her to come over and make heart-shaped cakes. There was a special kind of cake that was shaped like a heart. David doesn't pick on this clue that Amnon had more than platonic intentions for his sister. At Amnon's prompting, everybody but Tamar is sent away, and she obediently moves to his bedside so that he could eat the cake from her hand. Now, verse 9 reveals that initially, Tamar took the pan and emptied it out before him. So it obviously wasn't clear to Tamar that Amnon was so sick that he required feeding by hand. But he coaxes her, and again, as an obedient woman, she seals her fate. We know the rest of the story, and the assault is rightly told with little detail given, except for this series of desperate attempts by Tamar to dissuade her brother. 
in three verses, she spontaneously produces four very wise and godly reasons for Amnon not to do what he's wanting to do. Beginning with verse 12, she says, She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. So the first point she makes is that in Israel, which is a nation that's governed by God, rape and incest, unlike the pagan nations around them, this was sinful and totally inconsistent with what it was to be a part of God's people. That's what she's saying. She highlights the unique character of God's nation in the hope of causing Amnon to see just how wrong his intentions were. doesn't work. Verse 13, she says, As for me, where could I carry my same shame? So she appeals to what she hoped would be some compassion that Amnon might have for her as his sister by reminding him, Hey, there's irreversible harm. There's permanent and irreversible harm you're going to do to me. She continues in verse 13, And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. So she next appeals to Amnon's own self-interest. She rightly predicts that Amnon would, through his assault of her, be considered a fool, who by implication would not want to be king, or nobody would want him to be king. Finally, she says, Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold you, hold me from you. Now, whether or not Tamar would have genuinely been satisfied to be the wife of Amnon, we don't know. It may be that she's just grasping at whatever straws she can here. As we said, although this marriage would have been against Mosaic law because they're half-siblings, David certainly could have granted it on the precedent of two people called Abraham and Sarah, who were half-brother and half-sister. So he could have granted it. Amnon is obviously not interested in marriage or any other relationship with Tamar, so he commits this heinous sin against his sister. Even though Tamar's arguments are very strong and wisely reasoned, Amnon is not interested in anything approximating reason here. He's in the grip of sexual lust, and tragically for Tamar, he follows the lust where it takes him. Even worse in Tamar's eyes than Amnon's evil trap is the cruel aftermath. When Amnon forces her out of his house after the rape, verse 16 says, But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. That's an astonishingly strong statement. But he would not listen to her. Now that the, the first evil was done, the only remaining hope for Tamar the only hope that she has for not having the rest of her life end up being a complete waste, in her eyes, is that Amnon, who has now stolen her virginity, would consent to marry her. That's what she's getting at. Given the circumstances, David would almost certainly have allowed them to marry because it was Tamar's only chance to not live in lifetime of shame. Okay? It was also the only way that she could have children. Because, as we'll see, in that culture, a defiled royal princess was destined to never be married. It was horribly unjust, but it was the way things were, and Tamar knew that. And so, her desperate pleas for Amnon not to throw her out. Then whatever hopes she had of a normal life were gone. If we had any doubt about where Amnon's heart was before the rape, he erases it immediately. 
afterwards by kicking Tamar to the curb. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. So before the encounter, in Amnon's eyes, Tamar represents the fulfillment of his evil desires, and so he covets her. After the encounter, Tamar was just an unwelcome reminder of his sin and of the fact that he had probably ruined both of their lives. Wanting to be rid of a constant reminder of his own depravity, his heart completely hardens against Tamar. He can't stand the sight of her. In verse 17, he says to his servant, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. So he can't even use her name. He affirms the fact here that he has completely dehumanized this, this woman. Tamar understandably goes into an intense time of agony, agonized mourning. She tears her expensive garment that formerly signifies her status as a virgin princess, means it's not valid anymore. She puts ashes on her head and laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Ashes was obviously another expression of mourning and placing your hand on your head in that culture meant you were going into exile. So she knows where she's headed. She's going into exile. She's going to be isolated for life. It's important for us to see that the author goes into this kind of detail revealing the personal trauma and tragedy that this was for Tamar. And the author concludes with the most painful words in verse 20. He says, So Ta Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. There's no happy ending here for Tamar. There's no sign of redemption. It might have happened, but it's not here. That means that she would have been largely isolated from society as a woman who's covered with shame and who has no chance ever of being married and having children. And in this culture, in the ancient Near East, this is just about the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. Infertility was really bad, but to be infertile because you've been raped by your half-brother and are living in the isolation and shame that that brought, this is just about as bad as it gets for a person in the ancient Near East. The fourth and final section of the story is really the author's way of preparing for what comes next in the second section of Absalom's uh, second Samuel piece. This section is really the prelude to the next chapter. In verse 20, Absalom knowingly asks Tamar, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Of the countless men who could possibly have assaulted Tamar, Absalom immediately suspects Amnon, which means there was something about Amnon or how he had related to Tamar that Absalom had either observed himself or heard about that causes him to jump to this conclusion that just happens to be right. Absalom then gives counsel to Tamar that feels incredibly cold. Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. <laughs> Scholars disagree about what Absalom means here. It could be that he's simply telling Tamar, uh, this is too terrible for you to think about. Don't spend any time thinking. Just put it out of your mind. That would have been incredibly naive on his part, but he is a young man, and young men can be very naive about these things, so that's possible. 
He might be telling Tamar, don't you tell anybody else this because I want to be the one to give the vengeance here. That's possible as well. Or it might mean that Absalom knows that David wouldn't do anything and he wants to spare Tamar from that pain as well. Many of the commentators believe that was the reason. Or it could be any combination of the above or something else. Suffice it to say, what we do know is he's not doing a very good job of what he should have been about, and that is comforting his sister who's just gone through this tremendous, intense trauma. It's also true that there really is nothing that he could say that would have bought, brought a whole lot of comfort to her because she is on a human level. She's in a hopeless position here. David appears again in the story in verse 21. When David heard of all these things, he was very angry. There's nothing in the story that indicates that David did anything else other than be, get very angry about it. And the fact that he does nothing except get angry does not speak well of David. This is an uncharacteristically weak response from a king who has always been proactive and decisive as a leader before his sin with Bathsheba. At the very least, David could have told Amnon, that's it, you're not going to be the next king, you've disqualified yourself. Could have done that, didn't even do that. That would have been a very minor thing. By law, he could have had Amnon executed for this crime, and although that would have been very painful for him, and in some ways the nation, it certainly would have been better than doing nothing, and it would have been according to the law. When the author reveals that David gets very angry here, but doesn't do anything about it, he probably wants us to see the connection between, on the one hand, David's weak response, and secondly, his sin with Bathsheba. David surely would have felt hypocritical for punishing his son, punishing his son for a sexual sin when he himself had sinned sexually with Bathsheba and had not been executed. That's surely part of what's going on here. One commentator says this about David in this incident. He says, whether David should be faulted for cooperating with Amnon's suspicious scheme is debatable. But that he becomes furious and does not execute his unrepentant son, who by his rape violated his sister's person, and by his incest violated parental authority, is incontrovertibly inexcusable. Although David is forgiven of his sin with Bathsheba, He's just not the man he was before his fall from grace. And we'll see that again and again and again in the rest of 2 Samuel. So the author prepares us for the next part of this story when Absalom waits patiently for just the right moment for two years until he can kill Amnon. Before we close, let's think about three points of application from this very difficult story. First, God is willing to cause significant short-term pain in order to prevent greater pain in the future. That's one of the lessons, I think, that's taught here. Although much of the story is about God's judgment, there is this one element, at least, of God's mercy. We know from last week that the next king is going to be Solomon, okay? As a son born much later, because at this point in, in the timeline, Solomon's not even born yet because Solomon is the fourth son of David and Bathsheba. That didn't come out in the text last week. So he's not even born yet. Solomon's not even born. You've got Amnon and you've got Absalom that are teenagers, old, older teenagers at least. So for Solomon to be made the next king, which we know was God's choice, that would have been very, very difficult if you've got Amnon and Absalom hanging around. The second son 
Chaleb, we don't hear about. That was Abigail's son. We don't even know who he was. He probably died in childbirth or something. But the point is, is you've got Solomon, who's going to be the next king. In order for this to be anything close to a smooth transition, Amnon and Absalom need to be gone. Amnon needed to be gone because he was the crown prince. He would have rightly felt like he had the throne, and there would have been people who would have supported him. Absalom, we know from later on, is a charmer. He could gain a following. You didn't want him around. He would have certainly been a problem. And so, and Adonijah, who does a final usurpation of the throne, he was quickly dispensed with. So the point is, is in this terrible, horrific story, the death of Amnon and the beginning of the end of Absalom ultimately serves to prevent what would have been a broader catastrophe. I think that's clear. And God does this in our lives too. Uh, He allows us to go through great pain at times in order to spare us from what would be a worse fate later on. And the classic example and one that Tim Keller likes to give is he was a young man deeply in love with uh, a wonderful young woman who dumped him unceremoniously and he was destroyed by that and then of course uh, five years later he meets the love of his life who's a perfect soulmate and a perfect companion and and many of us have had that kind of experience at the moment we feel that great pain and we think the world is over and yet later on we're grateful for what God did when we begin to understand it that's the way God works and that's one of the things that God does here Another point of application on a very practical level is that our sin, especially our sexual sin, can have a devastating impact on those we love. Our sin, especially sexual sin, can have a devastating impact on those we love. This is one reason why clearly the author takes some pains here to reveal as much as possible the incredible anguish of heart that Tamar experiences here. Think about Tamar for a minute. She had done nothing wrong. Again, she was born 15 years before David had even met Bathsheba, at least 15 years. She was just minding her own business, doing what royal princesses do. And yet, she spends the rest of her life in isolation and disgrace, robbed of the great blessings that she should have had as the daughter of a king. In a matter of minutes, She went from having an incredibly privileged status to what would have been seen as a absolutely wretched life for any woman in the ancient Near East. And the author wants us to make the connection that Tamar suffered as she did because in a moment of insanity, David, driven by his own lust, opens Pandora's box on his family. David wasn't thinking at all about Tamar when he sinned with Bathsheba. But the author wants us to see that what he did with Bathsheba in a seemingly disconnected incident, in fact, had profound and horrific consequences for David's daughter, who had nothing to do. This is what sexual sin does in particular. It's like stepping on a spiritual landmine. It sends out shrapnel to all of those who are close. If you're contemplating sexual sin, if you're playing around with it, if you're flirting with someone who's not your spouse, if you're forming inappropriate emotional connections to someone who's not your spouse, God has this story for you to give you a warning that you are literally playing with fire. And it will not only burn you, it will burn those around you who you love. This is not a lesson you need to learn yourself. Learn it from Amnon. Learn it from this gruesome story here. Finally, surely a main point of application for us is God can be trusted to fulfill his words of judgment. 
This is an important purpose of this ugly story, to show God's integrity in fulfilling his promise, judgment on David. He's already done it in the first step. His baby died in spite of his heroic prayers. As we mentioned earlier, the author reveals this story in such a way as to make it clear, to make it easy for us to see the connection between David's sin with Bathsheba and this sin. It's fitting that part of the judgment on David for his sexual sin is for him to witness how devastating sexual sin is within the lives of his children. See, that's called the punishment fits the crime. David is doubtless reminded that he had no more right to do to Bathsheba what Amnon did to his own daughter. If David failed to perceive the devastating effects of his sexual sin and what it had on Bathsheba, he couldn't have missed the disaster it spelled for his own daughter, who, unlike Bathsheba, was a virgin. No one can doubt that as David processed this sin of Amnon against his daughter, he was doing some pretty serious reflecting on Bathsheba and his sin with her. He was surely seeing that what was happening in the family was a fulfillment of God's judgment as prophesied through Nathan. Numerous times in the Psalms that David wrote, he testifies to God's faithfulness in bringing judgment on those he's promised it to. One example is Psalm 9. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the hit net that they have hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. God will fulfill his promised judgments on all sinners. And one of those promises in the New Testament is in John chapter 3, verse 36. Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the promise that he makes, and this is a God who never breaks a promise of his future judgment, the promise that he makes is if you don't place your trust in Jesus Christ, eternal torment is awaiting you. We need to take that promise very seriously for ourselves, for those we love and we need to be praying for, but also those people who we just know that aren't, aren't believers. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you need to take this as a warning to you. Judgment is coming, and God will not change his mind about that. And so we need to repent of our sins and turn in faith to Jesus, trusting him to pay the penalty for our sin, rather than saying, no, it's on me, and then having to pay it ourselves. May God give us the grace, all of us the grace, to live in purity for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a difficult story, and yet we're so grateful that the Bible is, is not written as legend or as a fairy tale. It does contain these stories that are ugly and soap opera-like, Father, and God, we meet ourselves, at least in our own desires. Our desires can be so dark and so awful. Father, thank you for what your word can tell us. And I pray for myself, I pray for all of us, that you would cause us to live in purity. Father, that if we are going through something that's really hard right now, help us to know that it may very well be because you have something better for us in the future. And Father, help us to take seriously the fact that when you promise judgment, you always keep that promise as you keep all your promises. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.